sometimes hard to understand book. As we said on week one, even the Apostle Peter, even the early church found themselves scratching their head at times um, over some of Paul's writings. In fact, Peter wrote that in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. There are some words that are hard to understand. So when those moments hit us, whether they have or whether they, they will hit us, may we consider ourselves in good company. And although there might be some confusion in this book, there is power in this book. There's power to change lives. There's power to bring salvation. There's power to open our eyes to who he is. And let me just transition to today's message um, in this way. If you have in recent past um, tried to help your child or grandchild with homework, especially with math homework, you've noticed that everything has changed. So everything has changed. So when Madison was doing large multiplication uh, problems, she was taught the lattice method. So to make a lattice and to start putting numbers in different places and add them all up. And I'm just sitting there going, are you kidding me? Like, what in the world are we doing? And then uh, Malachi in large edition is now being taught to group everything by hundreds, tens, and ones, and then add up by group, and then add them all together. And I'm telling you, I'm sitting here doing homework, losing my mind, going, you take the top number, you put it over the bottom number, you look at whether it's a plus, minus, or multiplication, and you work the problem. It's not that hard. But let me just back up for a second. I don't want to get too emotional on that moment. But that's exactly, if you've ever, I lose my mind at least twice a week helping my kids with homework. It is uh, something else. And so being taught a different way to do something can be confusing. It can seem ridiculous or it can feel downright unnecessary. Now, this isn't part of the message, but when we became homeschool parents, and I use that word very, very loosely because I know we didn't do what many parents are doing. But when we became homeschool parents because of COVID, about a weekend, Malachi informed us, our eight-year-old son informed us that he did not trust us to teach him because we were not homeschool teachers. And he asked if we could send him to Aunt Natalie's house because she taught homeschool. Now, I don't know... You can't even imagine what that does to a parent for your eight-year-old to go, I don't trust you to teach me. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't trust trust me to teach me either. So we called Natalie, and unfortunately she was not available. But anyways, new ways of doing things, new ways of teaching things aren't always joyfully received. And that brings us to Romans 4. Imagine reading a mind-blowing essay that turns everything that you believe about God upside down. Would you be reeling with uncertainty of, can this be true? You know, could this certainly be true? Or would you be angry in defiance going, I know this can't be true. And when Paul wrote many of his letters, especially to the, the, the letter to Romans, this is exactly what it seemed like he was doing. To the reader, it seemed like he was taking what they knew to be true of God and he was completely turning it upside down. In their minds, salvation plus nothing else was a foreign concept. In their minds, that's not what was taught in the law. That's not what Abraham taught. That's not what Moses taught. That's not what David taught. Yet Paul establishes the fact that scriptures have always taught salvation by faith alone. From beginning to the end. It's not a picture of us seeking God. It's God seeking us. We understand what religion is. Religion is man's attempt to seek God. And there is a common thread that ties all religions of this world into one bundle except for one. All religions teach that man is um, 
doing things to be acceptable to God. And if we do enough things, if we do enough good things, eventually the, the God or gods will look upon us and say, you're in. Only one religion says that it is a wasted effort because we are already sinners condemned. I think of John 3, 17, after Jesus said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Then Jesus said, For I did not come into the world to condemn the world. And people love that verse. The world loves that verse. They're like, oh, Jesus is just so loving. He doesn't condemn. Isn't that just so great? And what Jesus was saying is, I'm not here to condemn you because you're already condemned. Like, I don't have to condemn you because you're already under sin. Sin has already had its way in your life. You're already there. And so just think about this. And I, I used this imagery last week. I'm going to come back to it. Imagine yourself standing in a courtroom, staring at a jury of 12 of your peers. You're not a court reporter. You're not a member of the audience. You are def a defendant in a capital murder case. The crowd comes to a hush when the judge bangs the gavel and says, Everybody, um, get to your places. And he says, has the jury reached its verdict? Yes, your honor, says the foreman. And she stands up and takes out a piece of paper and unfolds it. And she reads these words. On the count of first-degree murder, we find the defendant guilty. Crowd murmurs as you are led away to prison, having been found guilty of murder, and your punishment is death. Now, hopefully none of you in this room will ever find yourself in that particular scenario. But if we trade out a physical courtroom for a heavenly courtroom, we are all in this predicament. Every single one of us. You might not have murdered anyone, but you have all committed what the Bible calls sin against a holy God. And the Bible makes it clear that the wages of sin will forever be death. There is no reduction in the wages of sin. And only biblical Christianity teaches that sinful man can come before God through Christ and can be, as the title of the message today, can be justified, can be declared righteous, can be declared not guilty before him. So Paul has been walking through in Romans 1, 2. As we said last week, the summary of Romans 1 and 2 and part of 3 is you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. And now what Paul does is he's made this claim of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so what Paul does in uh, chapter 4 is he calls two witnesses to the stand. He calls Abraham and he calls David. Abraham was the father of the Jews. They would listen to him. David was the greatest king of the Jews. Um, David... When he spoke, they listened. So the Jews would listen to anyone. They would listen to these two. So I pray that today as we read these words, as we hear these words, may we listen as well. May we listen to what God is trying to tell us through them. And if, if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word today. We're going to read Romans 4, 1 through 12, and then unpack some truths together today. So beginning at verse 1, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is the blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Let's pray together. Fathers, we just continue on in your word, in this powerful yet deep and sometimes, Lord, difficult book. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just illumine. Lord, illumine, open our eyes. Illumine our eyes to see. Open our ears to hear. Oh, God, speak for we're listening. Today, Lord, help us just to rejoice and celebrate, God, in the salvation that you have placed before us. Help us to rejoice in the method, God, by which you have brought it to us. Just have your way in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So the passage that we read today kind of points to a song that I used to sing a lot as a kid, and maybe you did too. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Right arm, left arm, right foot, left foot, turn around, sit down. And so we, we see this picture. This song has been a favorite for countless children who have flapped their arms and legs and spun around and sat down and paid tribute to Father Abraham throughout the years. And today, today's scripture takes us and reveals to us Abraham as the father of faith because his life-giving God was the same God who gave life to the son um, that he would have but also gave life to Jesus Christ. And Romans 4 is an analysis of faith that really saves, that faith that really comes into our lives. And what Paul gives us here, so Paul is writing Romans around A.D. 57. He gives us a picture of what he would write a few years later to um, the church at Ephesus. In fact, what we have in these 12 verses is kind of a very long and a very difficult um, synopsis of what he was summarized in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not of work, so that no one can boast. So today, that is our um, text. That is where we're going. Those are our truths today. That is exactly um, the points that we're making. So we're going to place before us today three familiar truths for all of us today, and I pray that God would work in the midst of them. So the truth number one is this. Justification is through faith. Justification is through faith. 
you see on the screen, verses 2 and 3, what then shall we say? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, the Jewish mind was convinced that God chose Abraham because Abraham was the most righteous person on the earth when God showed up to choose someone. In fact, one Jewish source, Jubilee 23.10, says Abraham was perfect in all of his dealings with the Lord and gained favor by his righteousness through his life. So in the Jewish mind, Abraham had everything to boast about before God. And now Paul comes on the scene and Paul says Abraham would never boast of anything before God. Abraham has nothing to boast about before God. And then Moses, or excuse me, and then excuse me, Paul takes us back to an event that took place in Genesis chapter 15 when Abraham was 86 years old. Now, I don't know if you know the story, but in Genesis 12, Abraham was 75 years old, and God called him out of Ur and said, I'm going to take you to a land. I'm going to multiply you. You're going to be a great nation. Through your nation, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. But then we get to Genesis 15, and now Abraham was not just 75, now he's 86. He had no children. And God comes to him. Get the picture. God comes to him and says, let's go for a walk. So he takes him outside, and it's a nice night, and God tells Abraham, look up at the stars. He says, can you, can you count them? Can you count them? And then God says, so shall your descendants be. It's probably one of those very dark nights where the moon is low and the lights, or the, the stars, excuse me, are just blasting. They're just shining. They're blazing. And God points to the stars, and God says, Abraham, can you count them all? And Abraham's like, no, no, I cannot. And God says, well, if you could, that is your descendants. That is your progeny. And then the Bible says in Genesis 15, 6, it says, Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God. By the way, that the next time you're feeling low, the next time you're feeling discouraged, the next time you feel despondent or in despair, go outside and look up at the stars and consider that your God did that. Your God did that. Think of this. Isaiah 40 verse 12 says that God has marked off the heavens with a span. God has marked off the heavens with a span. I want you to do something for me. Everybody take your hand and just put it out like this. Your span from here to here, here to here is the span. That's the, your span. That is the, a measurement that the Jews would use. It was called a half a cubit. So a cubit was from here to here, so half a cubit um, is a span. The Bible tells us that the heavens, God measured them out. He marked them out with his span. Wrap your head around that. Get, get this in your mind. The Milky Way galaxy, 10,000 light years wide by 100,000 light years long. Let me just frame that for you. If you could travel the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, you could go around the earth seven and a half times in one second. You could sail past the moon in one and a half seconds. You could make it to the sun in seven minutes and 30 seconds. But to go from one end of the Milky Way to the other end of the Milky Way, traveling 186,000 miles per second would take you 100,000 years. So... We look up, and we go, wow. And God says, span, just, just, just a span. 
That's it. Just a span. And here, here's the reason I say that. When we're walking through difficulties, go up and look up. And that will help us frame what we're going through and trust the God who holds it all in the frame of his hand. The span of his hand holds it all. And it will help us to trust him in the middle of it. So back to Genesis 15, God makes this promise. And we're told in Genesis 15, 6, and Paul says it here in Romans 4, 3, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now the word counted there is a, a term that is an accounting term. It means to put on one's account. Now there's a huge biblical word for it. It's called imputation. Now, I know that's a hard word. That's a huge Bible word. But it means to put on one's account. And there are three imputations in the Bible. So three times that God takes something and puts on someone else's account. First is when Adam and Eve sinned, God took their sin and put it on all of our accounts. So he imputed their sin upon us. So Adam and Eve sinned. Sin entered them. They became sinful. They had sinful children who had sinful children who had sinful children who had sinful children. It skipped there in your children because your children are perfect. And then it went to other children who are sinful and sinful and sinful. You know how it goes. And just increased, increased, increased. So imputation of Adam's sin upon the human race. The second imputation is this. Humanity's sin was then placed upon Christ. Humanity's sin placed upon Christ, accounted upon Christ, imputed upon him, by which 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that Christ became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ became sin. The third imputation is God took the righteousness of Christ and put it on those who would believe. So three imputations. Adam and Eve sin upon humanity. Humanity sin upon Christ. Christ's righteousness upon us. James Montgomery Boyce, the great commentator, said that Genesis 15:6 is one of the most important scriptures on salvation in the whole Bible. Abraham believed God. So how was Abraham saved? Through his goodness? No. Through his boldness? No. Through his wisdom? No. Through his morality? No. Through his own righteousness? No. Abraham was saved for one reason and one reason only. He believed God. So Abraham's response became the example, the proof, the benchmark that any sinful person can be right with God simply by believing. We are justified through faith alone. Dwight L. Moody gives this amazing description of salvation by faith alone by looking at the thief on the cross. He says this, the thief on the cross had nails through both hands so that he could not work and a nail through each foot so that he could not run errands for the Lord. He could not lift a hand or a foot toward his salvation. And yet Christ offered him the gift of God and he took it. Christ threw him a passport and took him into paradise. Brothers and sisters, justification is through faith alone. Here's the point that that Paul was making, if Abraham was not and could not be justified by keeping the law, then no one can. And if Abraham was justified by believing, then everyone else must be justified the same exact way. So justification is through faith. The second truth is this, justification is by grace. Justification is by grace. I know the order is, is out of order from Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but we're just taking it as Paul gives it to us. 
Justification is by grace, meaning that we cannot earn it. It is a free gift. It's a gift, an absolute gift. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. Paul writes, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So when a person works, what what does the person expect to get out of their work? So paid, expect to get wages. When your job is complete, you must be paid. That is your legal right to demand payment. Therefore, your employer is not being kind to you. He's not showing grace to you. He's not having compassion on you by paying you what you earned. No, it's a debt. It's a debt that your employer owes to you. Now, let's just say on Christmas or that three months went by, you didn't get paid. And on Christmas, there was an envelope under your tree that said, Merry Christmas. And you open it up and it was the back payment from your employer. And there was a card written to the check that says, please accept this gift as our token of appreciation to you. Merry Christmas. Now, would you feel like that was an amazing gift? Would you feel like that was the best gift ever? I mean, if it came at a time of need, you'd be like, "Woo, this is great. I'm going to need this in just a little bit. But the picture is, this isn't a gift. You earned it. Therefore, if a person could work for their salvation, they could justifiably demand of God that they be paid. God would then be compelled to give salvation because we did the work to earn it. Salvation would no longer be grace. It would no longer be mercy. It would no longer be compassion or love. It would be a matter of indebtedness. Let me just say something that might might come across a little weird for some of you, but I think we need to hear it. God owes you nothing. God owes us nothing. God doesn't owe us Jesus. He doesn't owe us the Holy Spirit or any favor of any sort. If you should If you should persist in relating to God like he's the employer and you're the employee, then you will get your wages. But the Bible says it's not the wages you want. The wages of sin is death. Now, another reason that God gives salvation to us as a gift, hear this, is because God will not be in debt to anyone. God is not going to be in debt to you. The, The employer is in debt to the employee who works for him. But God is not nor will ever be in debt to us. Salvation is a free gift of his grace, never a result of works. So what kind of person does God justify? God justifies only one kind of person. We're told in verse 5, the ungodly. The ungodly person. The person that understands God owes them nothing. They can't give anything to God. In fact, in a few weeks in Romans 5, we're going to be taught that Christ died for the ungodly, those who understand their absolute need for God. Then let's look at verses 6 through 8, because now we're introduced to to David. You can see on the screen it says, David also speaks one to whom God counts righteousness. And then verses 7 and 8, blessed are those, and this is a quote from what David has written in Psalm 32, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So Paul now uses David for two reasons. First of all, David would have been right behind Abraham as the heroes of the Jewish faith. But secondly, David is also the pinnacle of a forgiven sinner in the Old Testament. Remember what David did in 2 Samuel 11. David should have been at war, but he wasn't at war. 
David was enjoying life. He's looking around. He sees Bathsheba bathing. He looks at her. He desires her. He calls for her. He commits adultery with her. Then he tries to cover it up. He calls her husband home. Her husband Uriah was more honorable than David was in that moment. And so David has him killed. In this sin, in this chapter, David basically breaks five of the Ten Commandments. Think about this. The first commandment. No other gods before me. In that moment, there were other gods before David. When we were reading through 1 Corinthians um, a couple weeks ago, and 1 Corinthians does an amazing job, Paul does an amazing job of putting together idolatry and sexual morality and how those things go together. So we get to the second commandment, no idols. And David had turned that into an idol. Then David coveted. Then David committed adultery. Then David committed murder. Just think about all of these things. And to go a step further, we, we know about the sacrifices. We know about the Old Testament sacrifices that God instituted. But did, did you know that there was no Old Testament sacrifice instituted for premeditated willful sin? There was no sacrifice by which David could just go and make and God was going to say, okay, you're good. The only hope that David had was to throw himself on the mercy and grace of God and to trust God to do what God had promised to do, which is forgive. And David is saying here in Psalm 32, in spite of David's sin, God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me. God has put my sin away. I don't know if you understand, but just think, think with me for a second. What must have Uriah's mother thought? The mother of the man that David killed. Just, just imagine her reading the words of David going, how dare you? How dare you think that God would forgive you for doing what you did to my family? How dare you to think that God would forgive you for, for doing what you did and causing the pain that you caused to my family? How dare you, David? And yet David said, I have sinned against you. I've sinned against your son. I've sinned against God, and he has forgiven me. David's case was absolutely hopeless. There was nothing David could do but throw himself on the mercy of God, and he did it, and God had mercy. It's a gift of God's grace. Listen, our spiritual legs have no strength. Our morality has no muscle. Our good deeds can't get to the finish line, but Jesus can. We are saved by grace through faith. Before we move on to our, our last truth, I want to just give you an illustration. It's not a perfect illustration, but I pray that it'll show you something of what Paul's trying to tell us. Just imagine for a moment that my right hand represents Jesus. All that is holy, all that is pure, all that is absolutely amazing about him. And this represents his righteousness. Now, i got to stop for a second. I, I was supposed to get a white handkerchief. I thought I had one at home, and I looked last night, and I could not find one. So instead, I have this. It's not 100% white, but it is 100% cotton made from China. So we're going to go and do the best that we can here. But just imagine this beautiful, almost white cloth represents the righteousness of Christ. So here Christ is in all of his glory and all of his holiness, and here is the righteousness of Christ. And then here we are, all of our sin all of our guilt, all of our shame, everything that we've done against a holy God. And apart from Christ, God looks down upon us and God sees us in all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt and there's nothing that we can do about it. Now let me just say something. 
In our sinfulness, here's what we want to happen. We want Christ to throw his righteousness on us, and we're good before God. And some of you are thinking, well, that's what he's done. No. Because in our sinfulness, here's what we want. We want the righteousness of Christ apart from Christ himself. We want Christ to give us a get-out-of-hell-free card and a get-into-heaven-free card. We just don't want Christ to be able to tell us to do whatever he would tell us to do. So heaven, yes. Deny myself, take up my cross, and follow you, not so much. But the only way, brothers and sisters, we will ever come to know the righteousness of Christ is not to be separate from Christ, but to be connected with him. And when we're connected with him, he throws the righteousness of himself over us. And when God looks at us in Christ, he no longer sees our guilt and our shame. He sees us wrapped in the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of who we are, brothers and sisters, in Christ, united to him. Oh, his grace. That's why God is able to save the ungodly. We are joined by faith to Christ. His grace has covered us. Where sin increases, as Kyle said, his grace increases all the more. We are saved through faith. We are justified by grace, which leads us to the last truth. Justification is apart from works. Justification is apart from, from works. So let me just real quickly get a little uncomfortable as, as Paul takes us again to this ritual of circumcision. We covered this a few weeks ago. We got kind of in-depth then. We're not going there now. So thankful for all of us. Praise Jesus. We've already covered it. But to the Jewish mind, you were saved by keeping the law and by being circumcised. Even the teaching was that Abraham would be at the gates of heaven, and if you were a circumcised male, um, he would automatically let you in. That's the way they thought. They thought that salvation came from doing something and from um, doing a work, a a sign of circumcision. So the Jews saw circumcision as a sign of membership into the, the Jewish nation, but into the kingdom of God as well. And Paul wanted to remind them, those listening, that Abraham was not declared righteous after he was circumcised. He was declared righteous after he believed. And so what Abraham does now is he, he kind of places this before us. And look at verse 6. Verse 6 says on the screen, God counts righteousness apart from works. Ding, ding, ding. That's the whole point. But then he goes on to say this in verses 9 and 10. For faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before. So follow with me here. In Genesis 15, when Abraham was 86 years old, he believed God, and God wrapped him in righteousness. Thirteen years later, when Abraham was 99 years old, he was circumcised. We're not going to think about that at all. We're going to move on as quick as we possibly can. But he was justified not by doing something, but by believing someone. And here's the point. Are there modern parallels for us? Absolutely. Let me lay these few before us. There are some people, maybe in this room, maybe listening at home or all across our nation and world, who are trusting in a prayer that they prayed or trusting in a baptism that's that's happened to them or trusting in a church membership to save them. And it goes something like this. I know it was a long time ago, God, but you remember I I was baptized right after camp. Now, I know I'm a terrible person. I know I hate my neighbor. I know I cheat on my taxes. I know I do all these terrible things. But 
I prayed the prayer, and I was baptized, so I'm good. I'm also a church member. Now, sure, I only go on Easter and Christmas, but God, you know I have to have my priorities, so I know, Lord, we're good. And there are people like that, or even say, well, I was baptized in the Jordan River on a trip to Israel with my church, so I'm even doubly blessed. And what God would say to that person is the same thing he would say to the Jew. You're not saved by... by, uh, Keeping the law, you're not saved by circumcision, you're saved by faith in Christ. And if you don't have that, you don't have it anything. You're, you're lost at all. The hope to hope in a symbol is vanity. To hope in Christ is hope. Let me just I'm gonna end this way. There's a famous question from Evangelism Evangelism Explosion that says this: if you die tonight, now I don't know why everybody dies at night, but you die at night. So if you died tonight and you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you say? I've asked that question to so many people and I've got so many answers. But the top answers are these. Well, I try to do my best. Or I'm a good person. I'm a good, good person. Or I believe in God and I even went to church. Or I prayed a prayer and I was baptized. Let me just kind of say something that, that might be shocking. None of those are sufficient answers. None of those are sufficient answers. And what I mean by that is this. If you're answering the question, what does it take to get to heaven, and your first answer, and the first word of your answer is, because I, then you might be trusting in something that you have done instead of trusting in what Christ has done. Listen, the correct answer is, how do I know that I'm going to heaven? Or if God were to ask me, um, why should I let you into my kingdom? What's the correct answer? The correct answer is because of Jesus. Because of what he has done for me. Now, let me just lay this before us. The whole point here is not for you to answer the question right. In our sinful mind, that's what we say. Well, just give me the answer, Michael. When I stand before God, I'll just give the right answer and I'll be good. No, that's not how it works. It's not about knowing the right answer or giving the right answer. It's about who or what are you trusting in for your salvation. In fact, we have one more slide I'm going to put up there, and that is the question. Who or what are you trusting in for your salvation? Who? Are you trusting in yourself for your salvation? Are you trusting in the faith of your parents or your grandparents or your uncle that's a missionary? Are you trusting in their faith to get you to heaven? Or what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your good works, all the good things that you have done? Or are you trusting in what has already been done for you by Jesus Christ? Brothers and sisters, there is only one way to be justified, and that is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. I pray that that is your story. I pray that you have been justified by faith, or by, by grace, through faith in Christ. Christ. I pray that you understand that you are trusting in the right person, you're trusting in the right work, and not in yourself and not in what you can do, but what has been done for you. I'm going to go ahead and ask members of our praise team that are here to come up. I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to sing about how Jesus is indeed our living hope, and he's not just our living hope, he's our only hope. But I'm going to pray as I pray, I just want to ask you to pray along with me. Father, come before you in this moment, Lord, this holy moment. Lord, having heard your word, having heard the words of, of Paul, there's 
no greater question that we can be confronted with than what are we trusting in for our salvation? But I just pray that everyone in this room right now is being confronted with that question. What are we trusting in for our salvation? Are we, have we, are we at this moment trusting in ourselves? Are we trusting in something that we've done? Are we trusting in, are we truly trusting in a prayer that we've prayed, an aisle that we've walked, a baptism certificate that we have, or a church membership that we're a part of? Is that what we're trusting in? Or are we trusting in what Jesus Christ did for us? And living the life we could never live, dying the death we could never die, and conquering the enemy we could never conquer. But I pray for anyone in this room, anyone listening at home that doesn't know you, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day, God, that they cry out to you from the depths of their heart, confessing that they have sinned against you. They have sinned against you, a holy God. And they understand in sinning against you, a holy God, Lord, what their punishment would be. But may they also, God, go further and confess or they believe that you sent your son to die for their sins. So that if they believe in him, they will have eternal life. Oh, God, I just pray across this room today or across homes today that your word says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, that there will be those today calling upon the name of the Lord and being saved. For others of us in this room, God, just, Lord, set us free. Set us free, Lord, by your grace through faith in Christ. Lord, even though we're not saved by works, Lord, if we keep reading Ephesians 2, right after 8 and 9, verse 10 says, we are your workmanship. Lord, we're not saved by works, but Lord, you save us and you give us a work. You give us something to do, Lord, for your glory. You give us some way by which we are able to shine your light for people to see our good works and it bring glory and honor to you. Lord, do that. Do that, God, for your glory. In Jesus' name.